This is a recording of my conversation with Boris Paskalev, co-founder and CEO of DeepCode, a Zurich-based startup. DeepCode is using machine learning to help improve the quality of programming code. We talk about the future of programming as activity and as a job, and learn how DeepCode leverages millions of open source code lines to help programmers write better code. I'm talking to Boris Paskalev, co-founder and CEO of DeepCode. DeepCode is a Zurich-based startup, a spin-off from ETH, the technical university here in Zurich. It aims to improve the quality of programming code by using AI to analyze it and suggest improvement opportunities. Boris, welcome. Please introduce yourself and DeepCode. Pleasure to, uh, to be here. Uh, as you said, my name is Boris Paskalev. Um, I'm one of the co-founders uh, of DeepCode. My personal background is uh, I'm a software developer. I finished my bachelor's and master's in computer science. Then I worked as a uh, developer uh, for a long period of time. I slowly transitioned into project project management, program management, uh, and more on the business side. Now I'm kind of working in, uh, as, a, as a CEO for uh, DeepCode, which is highly technical, deep tech. And yeah, about DeepCode, obviously, as you said, ETH spin-off commonly noted as the MIT of Europe. So it is the top university, technology university in Europe. This is where uh, the whole idea and most of the research uh, to enable the platform that DeepCode is started. DeepCode, in short, is uh, what Grammarly does to written text. This is what we do for software code, which means is we help developers with augmented intelligence by combining the knowledge of the whole global development community in, into one system and then be able to help developers write better software much faster and learn along the way. So ultimately, save them lots of time, enable them to deliver quality products at speed and be able to focus their time on the creative part of software development and not on the, not on the things that usually developers hate, which is like searching for bugs, fixing bugs, reading code, dealing with legacy code, etc., etc. Boris, let's uh, start our conversation with a bigger question. Where do you think uh, programming as an activity is going? Do you think programming will become to some extent part of uh, everyone's life at some level, given uh, the no-code movement, for example? Or will it stay as a specialized skill, a craft for uh, trade experts only? You're right. Ultimately, both of those things will exist uh, one way or another. There is definitely a shift. And if you say that everybody using no-code programming are considered developers, then absolutely yes, then the number of developers will be growing. Obviously, not everybody's going to be part of it. There's doctors, there's lawyers. They will be heavy users of systems created by hardcore developers or no-code developers, or I, I call it like business application developers, like drag-and-drop boxes to get something happening. The trends are currently very obvious. The amount of developers around the world are growing. The actual demand for them is growing. They are highly paid. Uh, or actually, actually, we are highly paid. And despite of that, there hasn't been actually any major changes in the software development world uh, from a revolutionary step. There's like small incremental uh, steps here and there, uh, but really nothing has like, helped developer to be drastically more productive, to deliver drastically less books, etc. Ultimately, big data or big code, as, we, as I call it in our industry, is there. Just nobody has really tapped into it. Six plus years of research and uh, three plus years of actually building and rewriting the platform. Uh, uh, to be where we are today. 
Uh, so that's why I call it, it's a software revolution that we're starting. We will change how we develop code. So what specific problems does DITCO try to solve and how big of a problem is it? The problem is, is that uh, software developers are wasting on average 30% of their time in searching for and fixing bugs. This is non-productive time, usually the least like type of uh, work, minus the meetings, the developer report. Uh, how big it is? Uh, so lots of research shows, and it's a continuously growing number. And I'll give you an example in the U.S. that uh, every year, 10% of the GDP of the U.S. is lost because of software bugs. And this includes like actual time being wasted, not only for the developers, but for the business managers, loss of revenue, and lost, loss of customers, legal fights, people actually suing companies because they something did not work, or a plane crashed, or a rocket crashed, never landed on the moon. Those are also expensive projects, like just the lunar landing recently failed because of software, but those, those are projects that cost you like easily a quarter of a billion to a billion dollars uh, a pop. It is a huge problem. So how does uh, deep code work and uh, what is the technology behind? The high-level description of the technology is simple, right? Again, trying to learn from every single fix ever made by software developers on a deep semantic level, understand what the problem was and how it was fixed. So collect that in one big bucket and then try to uh, use powerful machine learning algorithms to extract what are the most common problems people fix and how they fix them. From that, on top of that, you can actually build additional uh, predictive machine learning algorithms to actually predict what categories and type of problems exist that might never have existed yet, but could exist one day. And obviously, from that, you'll be able to actually get the, the, their, uh, uh, their solution as well. And ultimately, this gives you a huge knowledge base that is currently designed and it's working in real time that actually tells developers as they develop new code, hey, what you're doing here seems to be wrong. We can explain to them what is wrong. And we can give them examples how other people have fixed it. So really, in a matter of seconds or minutes, they can actually fix that without even actually committing it to the source code or ever hitting uh, facing customers. So this is called the, the shift left movement, where if you actually this any of those problems actually hit customers, then we already talked about how expensive it is. But if the developer can see it on the spot as they're developing it, then the cost to fix it is ten, twenty, thirty dollars, like five minutes of their time. And it's huge savings. In addition, developers actually learn what the problem is semantically, and they'll never make it, make it again. So not only they actually prevent the problem, they actually learn uh, and develop uh, as an individual. So where is the data coming from, the data that DeepCode uses to actually learn about uh, bugs and to learn about how they're fixed? Yeah. So we originally started with open source, like, uh, like the most common things, about half of the world uh, uh, code is right now open source, which is great, and the trend is growing. So from that, we've actually built the bulk of the knowledge base. Uh, and now as we go, we actually have uh, large private companies that actually have been uh, giving us access to their, their code-based history, specifically because they're doing very custom operations, and they might not be examples in open source that are actually applicable to them. So in this case, we can actually extract the knowledge from them as well, the exact same way we did it from open source, uh, and then we can actually have knowledge that is very specific for them. But ultimately... I'd say the majority, like 90% plus of the code right now, uh, of the knowledge right now, comes from the open source community. And this is the main reason why we're actually fully free for the open source community. And we will be like this forever. Because the more it develops, the more knowledge we get, it gets better get better, better for everyone. We use this deep code today, and, and uh, could, could you share some success stories? As I said, we're mainly focusing on the open source community right now, and many people that actually have their code base in the cloud. We have an on-premise solution 
uh, but we actually use this just with R&D business partners, like very large companies that share their code base and they benefit from it, or when we actually want to test some of our new features. This will likely change uh, in the next year, but as of right now, focusing on open source and specifically companies that are actually in keep their source, the source code in the cloud because for them, there's zero effort to start using us. You just log in with your GitHub, Bitbucket, GitLab account, and here you go. That's about a month ago when I looked at it. We had something like 80,000 different open source repositories subscribed for us to continue using us. That excludes the IDE integrations, like developers using it on, on their own. Uh, and in those uh, repositories, that usually represents something more than 2.7 uh, million uh, contributors. That represents anything. Like if you look at it, there's developers from any, any major tech giant in the world, any industry. We had uh, automotive, telecom, ICT, finance, medical. So how do companies actually use DeepCode today? Now I understand, obviously, if you're uh, in the cloud, that's easy. But what about company that has programming on premise uh, or large teams on premise? Cloud single login you can do. It just takes you like less than a less than a minute to start using it. Uh, we also have a public API and command line interfaces because uh, the modern development work cycle and, and setup is pretty much like a very complex plumbing. Each company has its own type of plumbing. Uh, connected many different services at different stages. So that's why having a uh, flexibility to do anything, it's great. For the on-premise, as you said, uh, you, which is usually, I say, 95% of companies with more than 100 developers still have a self-managed on-premise version. And on-premise could be private cloud as well. Like, And, and for there, we actually have on-premise solution. It is pretty much the same server that we actually serve now for the SaaS customers. They just install it locally. It takes about 20 minutes and you get the exact same results, same integration, same command line interface, same API. Boris, final question. So what do you think is the future of uh, the job of a programmer? Is coder becoming the next blue-collar job, meaning uh, ubiquitous, secure, and somewhat the backbone of the economy? To some extent, yes. But as I said, it is a spectrum, right? So you all, you still, even today, have like still mainframe developers, which are very different from uh, front-end JavaScript developers. Or So it, it is quite a range, right? And, and almost the range extends further with like people that just like business code development, like plug and play. Like the range is wide. I think that the core of the development will continue as uh, we've noticed every single company is a development company today. So that's why the demand is growing. That will continue for a little bit. I mean, will one day we have an AI of AIs of AIs that can actually do a large percentage of what of the coding done today? Yes, but there is always a but. The intellectual and the creative part of software development will stay there. Sure, like when I was a developer like 10, 20 years ago, I was writing my old sort functions and arrays and whatever, whatever, right? Today, that's just packages. There's packages for everything. Going forward, the packages will become even larger, right? So the abstraction level of development will move levels up, right? Like, I want a website. I mean, there is no need for you to, like, know HTML or Vue.js or just anything, right? You can just have the website. I mean, you can just draw it on a napkin, take a picture. There's some startups that do that. I've seen it recently. And then, voila, the code is written for you. So this will happen more and more. So most of the tasks that used to take a developer lots of time to do will just disappear, right? They will be, like, automated. But that will allow developers to really focus on much more complex things. Uh, I think I usually use an example of if you want to build a mission to Mars. Today, it takes hundreds of developers' years to develop that, like extremely slow process, etc. I'm not going to say how many years, but maybe five to ten. You're going to say, okay, I want to build a mission to Mars. 
and the, your augmented intelligence or assistance will tell you, hey, I don't know how to build everything, but here's a module that we know that works how to launch things from Earth. Use it, we know it works. Maybe it's SpaceX developing it, maybe it's NASA, maybe it's somebody else, so many, so many space companies now. Then second thing it will tell you, hey, there is a module that actually how to navigate between the stars. That's your next piece, congratulations. And there's a landing module, right? That actually works perfectly for Mars because it's kind of a common thing. And then a single developer should be able to connect those in a matter of minutes, and then he actually have a, a mission to Mars. Call it in. Tested, obviously, because things are there. So uh, automatic testing will definitely develop. Uh, we've seen uh, uh, and perform ourselves some research in the space. We'll be able to just develop much more complex systems, much faster, uh, and ho hopefully considerably more ro robust, which is the goal. There are always going to be problems, right, on the next and next levels, and they have to continue being solved. And this is where the development world will go, and the focus will have to be. This is great. Thank you very much. Pleasure.